0: Some things are more useful in the beginning than others. For instance, choose to work at a very large company and make a lot of connections there. But there's the question of what would happen in that process? Would I be making a difference that only I could make there? Or might I be floating around and feel like a cog in a machine? At a higher level, though, for instance, if I were to do something amazing in the startup world and then to go into a, a director position or something like that, then that would change the equation quite a lot because then I would be able to make an initiative that was really out of my own mind rather than someone else's initiative where there's already a process behind it and it's not a tank where it's empty rooms, funding, and a dream. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly.
1: Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Serena Rice, neuroscientist, cybernutrition, and storyteller of the startup world. Her life goal is to take as much suffering as possible and invert it. She does this in startups by expanding what humans, machines, and narratives do together. She's lived the most fascinating and diverse life you can dream of, even spending 22 months in a Buddhist temple training as a Dharma worker. Today, she advises and consults for high growth startups and works with us at Nobody Studios focused on her health and wellness domain. She's helping us through biomedical research and her startup skills to move towards our goal of 100 compelling companies over the next five years. We're delighted to have her, and I've one of the most fascinating conversations I've had in a long time. So where did it get started for her? Let's find out.
0: Out of any label that I could have been given during high school, for instance, it would have been being a band geek. I played four different instruments, and it was kind of funny because I chose the most challenging one to begin with, the oboe. Is a double reeded woodwind instrument. And for anyone who happens to be listening and not know what an oboe is, it's often mistaken for a clarinet. And so I decided at one point that I wanted to learn the saxophone. And there was the question of, okay, at what place should I do that? So I decided, well, I can take jazz bands so that I can play the saxophone and the oboe. So then I went into jazz to learn to play the saxophone but not to learn jazz. (laughs) And the kind of funny thing with this is that one of my classmates also played the saxophone for several years, and she kind of pointed at me as the person who should be improvising on the saxophone because she did not want to do it at all. Because in high school, people are self-conscious and they don't want to look foolish in front of their friends. So, okay, there was this point of, I've just played this instrument for one week. So what am I going to do with this thing now that I have to improvise in front of everyone in a jazz band and I don't know jazz and I don't know how to play this instrument exactly? The answer is just rise to the challenge and say, you know what, it's okay to not be good at this at all, at least at first, and then just to get better because maybe no one expects me to be that good at all. So I came into jazz thinking that I should learn to play the saxophone, but then it became learning the saxophone to learn to play jazz, and this greater continuity and integration in that. And I think that life in general, it is a series of integrations for me, where often there's a motivation to do something, and then there is some sort of Thing that happens along the way where I go, wow, this just incorporates into this fold really nicely. So it's time to dovetail.
1: So fascinating that you sort of bring this up. I actually wrote a blog literally only three days ago called Doing Hard Things. And it's one of these sort of lessons that I have learned about myself that is a real, almost, if you will, forcing function to help me get outside my comfort zone, get better at things. And be okay with like struggling and failing actually in the first instance in the pursuit of trying to improve, if you will. I'm a musician too as well. Total failed musician. All of my family actually play. My sisters were in a working band for many years. They're really, they're fabulous singers and musicians. But you learn a lot even in that domain about improvisation of experimentation, if you will, jazz as well as a form of music is all about experimentation in many ways, which is really fascinating. So when I always hear people who sort of have this perspective on the world of trying new things that are always hard in the beginning, but uh, but you put yourself in the position to be uncomfortable, to deliberately practice, I think as Anders Ericsson says, this notion of trying things that are progressively harder to help grow your capabilities, and, and but also experiment and not be so self-conscious about, did I succeed or fail, but I'm actually trying, which is such a, a huge part of entrepreneurship as well. For me, success and failure are just feedback mechanisms. It's like, are we going in the right direction or the wrong direction and course correcting? You just have to keep attempting as you go through that process, rather than get too hung up on how successful you are and Get drunk on it or how you failed and then get down about it. There's something interesting there. So, how did that then keep helping you to propel yourself then into these different domains? Because you've been in so many domains and essentially it's like a, it's almost like a learnt behavior now for you, if you will, to put yourself in that situation. What helped you to continue to nurture that in yourself as you were sort of tackling different types of areas that you focused on?
0: I think it's this matter of exploration, because let's say that you are in a sandbox and there are various treasures that are hidden in the sand, as is the case with a lot of mouse experiments in terms of foraging tasks. A person or a mouse could move from one place in this box to another in terms of knowing, Okay, I just want to get from point A to point B. But then there's the question of where are all the treasures hidden underneath? And what kinds of signposts are there along this way? And what if you do something a little bit differently and then a treat falls out of the sky? And so I think of myself as an extremely lucky person in general. And for some reason, a lot of opportunities just arise seemingly out of nowhere just because I happened to be in the right place at the right time and very openly receptive to what might arise. And a big piece of that is most people who know me probably know that I make a lot of puns. I just come up with them on the spot, and it is a lot of fun to just pull a word play out of a hat in the middle of class or during some sort of situation to break the ice or to help to remember things better. The sense of experimentation and figuring out, okay, what tends to work here and what doesn't tend to work here what tends to be rewarding and what tends to not be so rewarding. It feels like a matter of situational understandings and the more situations that we can understand that we actually get ourselves into, probably the better we can do to make a great fit between our actions and what is useful for that situation.
1: So tell us more then about as you started to go beyond your sort of early days and really sort of in your way your your sort of next major commitment, if it was that, to sort of go down the path of neuroscience and understand that, that space and how we sort of function as humans and the impacts that, that go around it. How did you sort of make that choice? And then also, like, what were some of the, the novel sort of things you had to unlearn along the way? Because I think it's these journeys into the unknown, there's so many assumptions that we often go in with. And yet when we say start to go from point what looks like a point A to B, treasures emerge, things surprise you. What were some of the twists and turns you discovered about yourself, but also that industry as you sort of started to dig into it?
0: One of the first things is is that I didn't go to a school that had neuroscience very much at all for undergrad. I went to a small liberal arts college called California Lutheran University. We didn't have graduate students in the life sciences. But I was majoring in biochemistry and minoring in philosophy and psychology. And I really loved all three of these fields a lot. There was the question, though, of what should I do with my life, given that I feel pulled in different directions. And so... What I had to do was think about why I liked all three of these directions. And then I realized, well, they all have something to do with the mind and how thought works. So what can just combine all three of these things? The answer was neuroscience. So there was then the question of what kind of neuroscientist am I? Am I a developmental person? Am I a person who studies cells and molecules? And then it was this matter of being in all of the boxes and none of the boxes at once, because I could not figure out what I was as a neuroscientist until my advisor in grad school said, well, all of your rotations, they were in systems neuroscience. And then I'm thinking, wait, there is a name for what I am? I'm a systems (laughs) neuroscientist. (laughs) I look at things at the level of molecules, at the level of cells, at the level of tissues, at the level of organisms, at the level of behaviors, So I am a systems neuroscientist rather than any one of these things. Okay, but another thing that I just found really rewarding was robotics. (laughs) And I just really liked being able to take the perspective of a robot in a similar way to taking the perspective of an animal, for instance, that we were studying. It seemed to be a similar concept in terms of, okay, what kinds of streams of data are they taking in? How are they interpreting the world and what kinds of actions will they use to act upon the world? So then apparently there is a field about that, too. It's called cybernetics. It's this field of circular causality. And then I realized, hey, I'm not just a neuroscientist. I am a cybernetician.
1: I hope you ran outside a door and said it just like you did there with your hands raised in the air. I think uh, like these profound moments of finally I've. I can label myself in some way. It's fascinating. What a great moment that must have been.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. We're continuing to integrate all the time, I think.
1: Exactly. This is why it's so fascinating to hear people's twists and turns. As you say, coming from a liberal arts background to like feeling like you had to, and this is an interesting thing, even as well, is sometimes society is so forcing us into like a railroaded path from such an early. Age, if you will. You must be on this highway and there's no on ramps or off ramps. There's only the first step you can get on along the way. And yet what I always find about the most interesting entrepreneurial people, if you will, is that it's never a straight path. There's twists and turns, they've gone off the road, they've gone off piece, they've come back to it, and they're really following their intellectual curiosity, you know. And I just think you're one of these people who struck me as that instantly. As you started then to get into this sort of world of cybernetics, which I really want you know you to educate me and the listeners on a little bit too as well, as you're describing it, like it's bringing all of these different ideas from philosophy to politics to science to biology that you are exposing yourself to on your journey, and then it's sort of maybe in some ways trying to like encapsulate that in a real accelerant around technology and robotics being that or trying to encapsulate some of this, as you describe, inputs, synthesis that produces an output or a behavior that we're expecting these entities to perform. So tell us a little bit about what are some of the misnomers, if you even will, about cybernetics and robotics? That, And then what were some of the things that you sort of were bringing with you from your past and sort of, you know, that you, could, you, you had learned and could apply or what you had to unlearn and relearn, if you will, to start to be successful in that domain.
0: I think that most people, they don't think about cybernetics. Instead, they talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning rather than also the full stack of, yes, there is a human in the loop in a lot of cases. And there is that question of what to do with edge cases and really edge cases. Some people, they talk about things like humanizing autonomy or humanizing technology. But the thing is that, what do you do about the really bad things about human nature? Because humans aren't always the best at solving problems. And what if you get a human who is in one state of mind versus another? So one of the things that people really get wrong about this is the kind of messaging. We want to make technology that has great situational understanding so that it can have a really good fit for the kinds of problems that it's encountering, rather than necessarily being human having a lot of thought to this and a lot of rigor in terms of how are these things designed are they created in a way that allows the most people to benefit and to create a solution that doesn't just solve a surface level problem but goes a few levels deeper then that is very good to have as a good technology
1: it's funny literally this morning I was speaking to Rajivan uh, Srinivasan, and he was the head of AI for Facebook for the last 10 years. He's just joined General Catalyst as a venture partner there. And I was asking him like 10 years in Facebook in artificial intelligence, what was that like in some respects? He just shared one of the most insightful things I've heard, as you already are. He talked about when you start to program From the very inception, you're programming values into the software, whether they're implicit or explicit. And while some of those values can help your company be a rocket ship and scale, when you hit these sort of tipping points, trying to reverse engineer out the initial values that were baked into the software and put them in a direction that's more aligned to what you're learning as a result of going through that process is extremely difficult. And it really got me sort of like my mind just thinking about like how we even think about this domain. It's almost too binary. I hear people sort of talk about it. I hear a little bit of what you're saying there too as well is that because humans are in the loop, everything's not black and white, a yes and no, true or false. When you're trying to program in situational awareness, it's not as simple as just a binary decision tree that you go one way or another. And yet humans are coding themselves into these pieces of software. So therefore, by default, they're coding themselves in whether they're aware of it or not. So that really struck me. And it's funny that I'm speaking to you again straight after that today, where just that seems to be something that's top of mind for me. I'd love to get your thoughts and opinion to that.
0: Yeah, there is the question of when you solve a problem, then what are you solving for? And I think that in a lot of cases, the solution is for speed. If you can make decisions quickly, then you are able to do things more quickly. So then, for instance, with humans coding themselves, if a person knows from a very young age, for instance, that they want to be a scientist or they want to be an artist and then they just focus on that, then, well, it's good. But then there's the question of what is the real outcome of this? My mother, well, she is an engineer and she has told me before that when she was growing up and even now she was always jealous of the people who could talk not only about engineering or just about their job but they could also talk about things like philosophy and politics and art and poetry and all of these other things to life because a person is not just their job. And so there is this question of Do we pigeonhole ourselves? And what is really needed for us to flourish as people? What do we want to create of our lives? And what do we want to create of our surroundings or various technologies that we make there?
1: Well, this to me goes back almost to your origin story of the show, if you will, where the intellectual curiosity to put yourself in uncomfortable domains where you might be naive to them in the in the at the onset, but exposes you to different perspectives, different viewpoints, different ways of doing things. Whether that's in the guise of music, where my music career started, pretending I wanted to be Kurt Cobain and like bashing out grunge music, right? <laughs> but then I realized after a period of time, there's really only like four chords that you need to be a grunge artist, and that there's very little. I'm hesitant to say musical mastery involved, but you know, I didn't have to learn the scales to be in a garage band. I just needed to know where to put my hands on the guitar and hit it as hard as I could when I was strumming. But as you delve deeper into the pursuit of music, whatever your launching point was, you, you have to, if you want to, if you will, improve the craft, you know, there's, you have to learn these things. and. In putting yourself in a jazz environment, some people can improvise by ear, but many people have to learn the system and then improvise within the system. So it's always really fun to me to think about the portfolio, if you will, of intellectual pursuits I have. Is it too narrow or can I broaden it? It's actually one of the things I love about what I do today at Nobody is because we built so many companies in such a broad set of domains that I just get exposed to so many input sources and um, from people who are have excellence in these fields. It's like a every part of my brain is firing, going, wow, that's interesting. And how does that connect to this dot over here? And it's a real playground from a mental point of view for me. Yet I wonder like how often we're we are creating those opportunities for people to sort of explore intellectual curiosity. Are they willing to expose themselves to areas where they're novice and are unknowns and suck at them as they explore them because there's such pressure to commit to things and be good at them and not fail? You know, I constantly live with this thought as someone who has to probably understands neuroplasticity a lot better than me. What are your thoughts?
0: Well, one of my thoughts is that it's useful to know Through at least some experience, hands on, what is really hard to implement and what is not? What constitutes, say, mastery of music? So, for example, if you go over to a concert, then you don't necessarily need to know how to play every instrument in the band to get a sense of what is good music, what sounds good, what kinds of effects are happening here. But knowing some things about how it works, they allow for a nice sense of appreciation because you know what it took. So similarly, you don't need to be like a star programmer in order to learn to appreciate very complex code that does a lot of things well. But it may help you appreciate it more to know, okay, this is what it took to learn to do some programming. So I can imagine that with say 10 years of experience that is very much a craft so i think it's really an appreciation of people and the world and the various things that happen in more detail
1: now you've like really thrown yourself into the startup world right on the back of all the other things that you've done so tell us what encouraged you then to take that next sort of iteration if you will of your focus and and energy because even in that world you have a, a very diverse set of areas that you're exploring. So, wh- tell us what, how you sort of then made that next week and what some of the things that you had to sort of let go of from your, let's say, academic time, if, if that's even fair word, to move into this sort of entrepreneurial world.
0: It's kind of funny because I think that I have made my time in grad school about as entrepreneurial as a person could, given the policies and guidelines of my program. So, I went into a brand new lab and the lab, it had very little set up at first because we were getting equipment in, we were figuring out what we're going to do as a lab and things like that. So the sense of empty rooms, a dream, and some funding, it seems to be a situation that I have continuously found myself enjoying yeah. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> and some people putting are yourself really in. Crazy. Of the blank stage, and they would feel a lot more comfortable going into, say, a lab that had been established and had been doing a certain something that where you know what the result would be, rather than embark on a whole new adventure where you don't know where it's going to, and you don't know what's going to happen in the middle, and you kind of know what's happening at the beginning. So I think that different people, they are able to manage the uncertainty better than others. And in the startup world, it is a ton of uncertainty. It's okay that not everyone likes having a lot of uncertainty, but for some reason, whenever I try to plot out my future and it doesn't get me very excited, then I know that I have to do something else.
1: So tell us a little bit about that activity. Cause you know it's always great for people to have some like little tools or tips and tricks about how you intentionally do something that looks like it's sort of automatic to people on the outside. When you're sort of like plotting your path, what are some of the questions you ask yourself? What are some of the systems, if you will, you use to help you figure out what's the next step?
0: The biggest thing is this orientation towards how do I make the biggest positive impact in this lifetime? How do I take as much suffering as possible and invert it? And, That's a different equation than if someone were to ask questions like, how can I help people a lot in a certain domain? Rather, it's a big overarching thing. Okay, so given my orientation towards inverting suffering, (laughs) it is going to be, all right, if I were to do this at scale, then what kinds of connections would I need to make to make that happen? And what kinds of opportunities should I say yes to? And which kinds of Opportunities are going to be a distraction in this process. Who should I be friends with? Who should I not pay as much attention to, even? And I try to be kind to everyone, even if I really don't have time. But there is this matter of okay, some things are more useful in the beginning than others. For instance, choose to work at a very large company and make a lot of connections there. But there's the question of what would happen in that process would i be making a difference that only i could make there or might i be floating around and feel like a cog in a machine at a higher level though for instance if i were to do something amazing in the startup world and then to go into a, a director position or something like that then that would change the equation quite a lot because then i would be able to make an initiative that was really out of my own mind rather than someone else's initiative where there's already a process behind it and it's not a tank where it's empty rooms funding and a dream.
1: Yeah, it is so true like even what resonates when you're describing some of your the components of your equation, right? Like agency really stands out to me as I listen to what you're saying too as well, which is something that resonates a lot with me. Like I always knew I would never survive in a big company where I was a, a clog in the machine. It couldn't work for my makeup. I always want this ability to feel like that I have agency and can take initiatives and see how far they go. And it's one of these reasons where I always tend to enjoy smaller companies in the hundreds rather than when they start to get into the thousands. Like the last real place I worked, when I joined, it was like a couple of, we're just starting to hit like in the high hundreds of a globally distributed company. And it it always felt like you had agency, anyone in the company had agency to take action and, and affect something. And, and you could see the effect as well of what you were putting into the system and what, what the feedback mechanism was providing. But even as the company grew, I could see that signal get weaker and weaker and weaker and harder to actually, you know, move. And and you know, for my propensity, that was a tipping point, if you will, for me to go, right, it's time to get back into the an empty room now again with nobody in it. And let's start like rebuilding the thing again, right? And having fun. It's interesting to hear that's part of your design system because I think people sometimes don't take those, if you will, variables into the equation. They sometimes feel that the situation is enacted upon them or maybe they just, they are, sadly, don't have as much agency. When you're in these big machines, like how do you change them? Or can you put yourself in these situations that might seem uncomfortable but actually give you more of the elements that you need to sort of feel more fulfilled in what you're doing, whether it's intellectually or contributing wise or outcomes that you see from the efforts that you're putting in. It's really fascinating to hear you talk about that in terms of how you design it. So looking forward then, obviously I'm getting the pleasure to sort of hang out with you on a higher frequency basis through Nobody Studios and the the companies we're trying to build there and the work that you're doing in terms of research and areas that we're Tell us what you're sort of excited about the future ahead for you and what's going into the next equation that you're working on at the moment.
0: What's going into the next equation is the sense of thinking through network effects in terms of, okay, science, it tends to propagate in knowledge through a system fairly slowly because it takes time to find some sort of thing that will advance technology. Technology, it can be somewhat faster, partly because it can be patented and it is there and it is applied and it can be scaled up. And then there's stories. Stories, they can be scaled almost infinitely and they can travel so quickly. So I think that this part of my story <laughs> and part of the equation is becoming a terrific storyteller about matters of science and technology.
1: Yeah, I couldn't encourage that enough, right? And it's really the thing that resonated with what you're saying there is stories travel faster, almost in the speed of light, it feels like sometimes if you can have a a story that really hits people on their why and what matters to them, it can be the best network effect you could dream of. I see this as well, even with nobody, like people keep, showing up at the door going, hey, I read your website. It just resonated with me. And I need to find out how I can be part of that. Or they were like, I heard somebody talking about this in some Slack community. I was studying and they shared this with me. And suddenly, like, this sort of network effect that's bringing people into the system, is sort of blowing my mind because we've done no marketing. We're barely telling we could tell lots more people about what we're doing, and yet they're finding us. And the people we're finding are a real type of character that have a value system and a way to work that that really matters. So I'm really curious for what you know you're thinking and experiencing from that point of view.
0: I first came to Nobody Studios because of a connection whom I had for a long time, Dr. Gina Poe, who is a professor of neuroscience at UCLA, and I think that the sense a bond of friendship or a bond of we've been colleagues for a long time. It's very, very common in Nobody Studios. There have been so many times when I have talked with someone and they've said, I've known Mark for 10 years or I've known Mark for 12 years or some other very long time frame. And the sense of building businesses in the first place, it is very much an equation of friendship. Even if it's something that cannot really be quantified, I think that It allows systems to uh, be resilient to shocks, especially when we're going through challenging times or emotional turmoils or the various things that can come up in business and life along the journey.
1: Couldn't agree more. If anything, it feels like building startups is an emotional shock to the system on a daily basis. And trying to find ways to work through that has been super fascinating. Well, look, it's always amazing to have get to speak with you, Dr. Sreena, and all the things that are lighting you up. I'd love to know for you, what's the one thing that's lighting you up at the moment? What's the thing, as you look ahead, that you're most excited about? And it's sort of sparking your intellectual curiosity again.
0: The sort of ironic thing about this is that I'm not allowed to talk about it because it's in the stealth Ah. technical technology startup that I'm working on.
1: (laughs) Well, that's good enough for me. It's always good in storytelling to leave a cliffhanger. What I would encourage people simply to do is to follow you and your exploits because there's no doubt about it, whatever you're doing is going to be exciting, fascinating and worth following. Thank you very much for being on the show, leaving us with a great cliffhanger and sharing your story with us. It's been a pleasure to have you on.
0: Thank you so much, Barry.